Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 21, the end of the chapter, the end of the epistle. Last week we looked at verses 11 and 12 where Paul charged Timothy to flee covetousness, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, to fight the good fight of faith, to lay hold of the eternal life that God had given him. And in verses 13 through 21 now, Paul reminds Timothy to be faithful to his charge. When we hear words like being faithful to a charge, we generally think of pastors and missionaries and those who are referred to often as those in full-time Christian service. But all believers have that same responsibility to listen to his charge, to follow God completely. He gives all of us a calling, a ministry, an opportunity to serve, and we should endeavor with his help to be obedient to that calling. We started this series of our study in 1 Timothy on April 16th. The message, if you remember, was entitled, Guarding the Gospel. The letter ends the same way it began, and so I thought an appropriate title for this last message in the book is, Keep Guarding the Gospel. Verses 13 to 14, Be faithful to your charge. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word for charge here is taken from two words, para, which means along with, and then angelos, which is a message, the gospel message. And so it is taking this message along with us. That's the charge. Each of us are messengers for the King of Kings. Each of us has that charge of the gospel that we're to carry along with us all the time. It should be right there with us. Do you have it with you in your daily life? Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The gospel there is euangelion, the good message. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There are divine witnesses to this charge that Paul is giving to Timothy. He just told, uh, finished telling him in verse 12 that you've professed a good profession before many witnesses, speaking of people. Now in verse 13, Paul says, I give thee charge in the sight of God. And then he'll add, and before Christ Jesus. So Paul charged Timothy with God as his witness. When there's a wedding, the vows that are made are usually introduced with words like, in the presence of God and these witnesses. And the covenant that's being made between two people, are, are, they're making promises, but there are witnesses to those promises. And those witnesses validate the fact that that's exactly what they said to each other, and those are the promises. Paul is calling on Timothy to remember the words of this charge, to be faithful to the calling. And he adds a word about how God, who witnessed Paul's charge to Timothy, is the one who will sustain Timothy through any trials that he might face. It's an interesting phrase. It's the phrase, who quickeneth all things. God is the one we know who is the originator of life, but probably in this context he's talking about him being Not only the one who begins life, but who sustains it, who preserves life. 
Hebert writes, it views God as a preserver of life, able to preserve his servant faithful even unto death in a courageous defense of the gospel. As Timothy read those words, he would have found encouragement in that truth. Paul just told him about fighting the good fight of faith. That means there's an enemy. That means there's, there's a risk involved here. And it's comforting to know that God is the one who is preserving our lives. We don't know how fierce the battle may get. Believers in the coming days are going to face probably things that we have not faced before. But we can take comfort in knowing that God is still the one who is the preserver of our lives. We can trust him. If he has a call for us, we're going to be able to complete that call until he's done with us. It's a wonderful truth. Jesus Christ is also a witness to that charge. And before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate, witnessed a good profession. The word confession in verse 13 and the word profession in verse 12 are both the translation of the same word, homologia, which means to say the same thing. It's using words to agree with the truth. That's a confession. And Paul uses the example of the confession or the profession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate. That's found in John, 8, uh, John chapter 18, verses 33 through 38. I want to be mindful of the clock this morning. And let me just read a few of the verses there. Pilate entered the judgment hall again, called Jesus, and said, Art thou king of the Jews? A little bit later, he says, My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus answering. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should, be delivered, that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate asked him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus said, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. For everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And then Pilate asked him that question, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went to all the Jews and said unto him, I find no fault at all in him. That is what Paul is using as a good profession. You won't find a better one. May God give us the boldness and the preparation of speech to have that good profession of our faith before others, whether co-workers or in some court setting. What kind of profession do you have? Do you have a statement of faith that you can make in, in one minute or less? A, a quick testimony of your faith when someone asks you about your life? Well, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for my sin. I have trusted that work on Calvary to be my hope of eternal life, which he's promised to those who trust him. Can you say something like that? Just similar, that you have put your faith in Christ. You should have a short and probably a long profession ready to give at any moment. You might want to write it out. Have it ready. Kim Miracle's son, Dan, wrote a tribute to one of his heroes as an assignment for a class with a police force. The man he wrote about was his dad. And he read that letter at his dad's funeral. It was a testimony of Dan's own salvation experience. And it was powerful. And God used it. If you sit down and write your profession of faith in Christ, your testimony... God is going to give you an opportunity to share it. So be ready, be prepared. Paul challenged Timothy to be faithful, not only because of the human witnesses, but also because of the divine witnesses. 
to carry that message to the world, to be obedient to the command. In verse 14, Paul urged Timothy to be faithful to this charge, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What was the commandment? When Paul tells Timothy to keep this commandment, he's probably not referring to one specific command in Scripture. One author writes, there is no limiting feature in the context that would narrow the definition of the commandment. It should therefore be understood in the broadest sense as the entire revealed word of God, which Timothy is charged to preach. What does it mean when Paul tells him to keep this commandment? There are two possibilities. Keep can mean to guard something so it's not lost or it's not stolen or damaged to fortify the defenses around something valuable so that it can't be taken. And are, are we supposed to do that with God's word? Absolutely. There are those who are attacking the Bible, even from the religious realm today. Some don't believe that God created the world in six days. Some don't believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Some don't believe that Jesus is coming again like he promised in his word. And we need to guard and defend those doctrines of the scriptures that, that are there. Keeping this commandment may also mean to be obedient to what God says. That's generally what we think of when we think of keeping commandments. Keep it by observing to do all that's written in it. It's probably the case here where both are true, both possibilities. Guard it from attack and obey it. How are we to keep it? Paul tells Timothy to keep this commandment three ways, without spot. That's talking about Timothy's own integrity, his personal purity. His life is to be without spot. Keep the teachings of Scripture so that every night when you put your head on your pillow, you can say, Lord, I, I, I have tried to live today according to your word. I may have failed. Forgive me where I have. It helped me to be more like Jesus Christ. Keep it without spot. Keep it without rebuke. We're to live in such a way that no one can point their finger at our lives and say, oh, he says he's a Christian, but look at this. Look what he did. Keep the commandments of God by living a life that validates the message that you preach. And third, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep God's word until Jesus returns. Don't be like some who start the race well, but get tired and quit running because it gets too difficult. The appearing of Jesus Christ is our motivation to keep obeying and to keep guarding the scriptures. Be faithful to your charge. We come now to two verses that we'll title, Be Aware of the Greatness of God. It's interesting, here's a doxology, a word of praise that Paul gives. We're to be faithful to our charge because of who God is. And I think he, this, this doxology just fits right here because when we're charged to be faithful to the commandments of Scripture, it's good to remember whom we serve. Remember about who God is. Be aware of the greatness of God, which in, in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, 
and Lord of Lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. And as all good preachers, it looks like he's done with the message, but he'll say amen again in verse 21. Here's a sevenfold declaration of praise. First of all, God is in control of the time of Christ's appearing, which in his times he shall show. The which refers back in verse 14 to that appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word for appearing is a word we get our word epiphany from, a manifestation. He's talking about the second advent of Christ. That event is in God's time. It's an interesting verse in Mark, chapter 13, verse 32. It says, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man. No, not, not the angels which are in heaven. And then an interesting statement, neither the Son, but the Father. This is in God the Father's hand which in his times, God's in control of the time of Christ's appearing. Secondly, God is sufficient, self-sufficient, I should say. We have the, just that word, the blessed. It's the word makarios. It's used in the Beatitudes in Matthew. And it means to be perfectly happy or to be fully content. And it's speaking, when we think of it as God being blessed, is he is not lacking anything. There's nothing that he needs to make him content. He is self-sufficient. Third, God is sovereign. We have three terms, the only potentate, that is a ruler with power and with authority, and since he's the only ruler as such, he is the, one, the only one with supreme authority. He is the supreme ruler. And then Lord of lords, that is not a lord among other lords, but a lord over them. And king over all kings. God is sovereign. Fourth, God alone is immortal, who only hath immortality. Literally, the word is deathless. God never had a beginning. He will never have an end. Man is mortal. Now, man has a, an immortal soul that will spend some place for eternity, either in heaven, everlasting life, or in hell, everlasting death. But they're eternal then. We understand that God alone is immortal. God cannot die. Brings up the question, what about the death of Christ? Well, he tells us the answer in John 10, 17 and 18. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. That was voluntary. He said, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So God is the one who is immortal. God is holy, number five. Dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. It's a place of brilliance, a place separate from anything human. No man can approach to that. It's talking about his holiness. Sixth, God is invisible, whom no man hath seen nor can see. John 4.24 says God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. You say, well, what about Christ? Jesus was God and men saw him. And a wonderful verse that was shared in men's prayer meeting yesterday morning, Colossians 1.15, that identifies Jesus as the one who is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of God who is invisible. Like God's attributes, he is 
uh, he shares those attributes. So uh, the last, God is worthy of praise. To whom be honor and power everlasting. He's worthy of honor, our reverence, our respect. He's worthy of praise for his omnipotence, for his power. And both of these attributes, like all of God's other attributes, are everlasting. Walter Chalmers used the words, these words from this text in the, in the text of his hymn, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty victorious, thy great name we praise. As you commit to being faithful to your charge, your calling of God in your life, you can be strengthened by the awareness of who God is, an awareness of the greatness of God. Be faithful to your charge. Be the w- aware of the greatness of God. Third, in verses 17 through 19, be a challenge to others. Here, Paul is adding instructions now to the wealthy that he started back in verse 6. In verse 10, remember he said the love of money is the, the root of all or all kinds of evil. So, verse 17, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches but in the living God, which giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against or until the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. As you recall, as we had our study in the book of Revelation, it was the wealthy church of Ephesus that Jesus said in Revelation 2.4 that they had left their first love. Could it be the temptations of riches that instigated that? What advice should be shared with those who are rich in this world? I like that phrase, in this world, because it, it lets me know that there is a wealth that is not measured in earthly currency. <laughs> the riches of God that are found in Christ Jesus. There are eight words of advice for those who have riches in this world. Don't do two things and then do six things. The first two, don't be high-minded. That is, have a lofty estimation of your own self-value or self-worth, of your place in life. It's probably one of the biggest mistakes that wealthy people make. You say, that's not my problem because I don't have a dime. (laughs) It might be. Kent Hughes writes it this way. Wealth deludes people into imagining that they are of superior value. The delusion goes like this. I have more than other people, therefore I am superior. And certainly, God sees my superiority, otherwise I would not be so blessed. He goes on to point that a mafia don could also use the same reasoning. (laughs) Wealth doesn't mean blessing. Number two, don't trust in wealth. This is, again, advice that Paul's giving to Timothy to those who are in the church who who are wealthy. Don't trust in wealth. Don't put your hope in things that are uncertain. There's a wonderful verse tucked into Proverbs 23.5 that talk about riches that make themselves wings and fly away. And they make their own wings and then they're gone. And then he asks, why do you want to set your things, uh, your eyes on things that are not? Don't trust in wealth. 
Things can change quickly. But rather, and here are six things that wealthy people should do, but rather trust in the living God. Why? Because he's the one who gives us all things. That is, everything we need comes from his hand. He gives them in abundance. He gives them richly. He gives them for us to enjoy. And when riches increase, he's saying, keep your focus on God. Wealth is uncertain. God is not. He is certain. He's the one who supplies all our needs. These supplies are abundant. And genuine joy and contentment is ultimately found not in what God gives us, but in him. So, trust in the living God. Fourth, uh, in, in, in the list here, or second in the, in the positive things, do what is good. Be rich in good works. The word good there is, is something that's beneficial. Use your money for something that is beneficial. Ask God how he wants you to use it. Be ready to give. Have, have that generous spirit. And Lord, whatever you tell me, that's, that's where I'll give. Be willing to share. The word is communicate. It's to be helpful. And lay up in store what will last, verse 19. Laying up in store for themselves. You're the one who makes that investment choice. A good foundation until the time to come. Invest in the future, eternal future. And then we do it with this purpose that we may hold, lay hold on eternal life. That doesn't mean by giving you have eternal life. It means those who have eternal life will just naturally want to lay up their treasures in heaven. I can't read those verses without thinking of the passage in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, through 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there shall your heart be also. Be faithful in your charge. Be aware of the greatness of God. Be a challenge to others. And then the fourth point in the last two verses, be faithful to your charge. You say, well, that's the way you started. Well, we'll call this a reminder then. He ends the way he began this section. Verse 13, he said, I give thee charge in the sight of God. Verse 14, that thou keep this commandment. Now in verse 20, he says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. The word for keep here is a different one than we saw before, but it has that same twofold meaning, to guard it and to obey it. Keep it. Keep the things that have been, you've been entrusted with. The word trust there is, is a deposit. Paul was depositing his ministry into Timothy. Timothy would guard that deposit and pass it on to someone else. Paul made internal, eternal investments in Timothy. He wanted God to, to reward those by blessing both of them, Paul and Timothy, with dividends. So he tells Timothy to guard the gospel. Just south of Louisville, Kentucky, is an army post known as Fort Knox. And it was, it's a place where right now there are 147.3 million ounces of gold kept as an asset against uh, the United States indebtedness, which is 3.25 trillion, or 32.5 trillion, so it, it wouldn't cover it, but that's why it's there. 
But besides the gold bullion that that's there in Fort Knox, they also store many uh, treasures, national documents, uh, treasures from around the world. You say, well, I'd like to visit there, maybe take souvenirs. The building is made to keep those valuables safe. It was constructed in 1936. They used 16,000 cubic feet of granite, 4,200 cubic yards of concrete, 750 tons of reinforcing steel, 650 tons of structural seal. It's pretty secure. <laughs> you and I have been entrusted with something that is far more valuable than that gold. It's the word of God. It's been entrusted to each of us. Are you guarding the deposit that God has committed to your trust? Do you value the treasures that he's given you in his word? Are you guarding it against attacks? Are you keeping it on a day-to-day basis? He ends with what to avoid in the second half of verse 20. Avoid some things. Timothy, don't get caught up in worthless chatter that is so common in church. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee in peace. Amen. Profane and vain babblings. The word profane comes from a word that, that uh, the root word is the threshold of a, of a home. And the idea is once you step over that threshold, you're going out into a, a profane place, a place where God is not always recognized. And so avoid faithless speech. And then vain or empty sounds, words that don't mean anything. Avoid not only faithless speech, but avoid fruitless speech. You get done talking for an hour and you say, well, what was that all about? It it didn't change anything. It 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 doesn't affect me. When you say something, use meaningful words that convey truth. One of our sons says, sometimes words aren't the best option. <laughs> if, you're not, if you don't have anything to say, don't say it. But here, empty sounds. Not the, don't be concerned with the what ifs. Be concerned with the what is true. God's word. Avoid oppositions of so-called science. Beware of saying that you have knowledge if that knowledge turns out to be false, a lie. That deals specifically with the lies of Gnosticism in the first century. That is a false claim on some secret kind of a knowledge that nobody else can gain other than a few elite. It also addresses many things that are claimed as truth today that are not true. In verse 21, Paul includes a warning for some who've gone down those wrong roads of pseudoscience, false knowledge. The lies they believed eventually led to a denial of the faith. Some professing have erred concerning the faith, the body of truth of the scriptures. God is a witness to how we're all living our lives. Are you faithful to his charge, his calling on your life? Can you say that you're living 100% in obedience to God's word? Are you guarding what he has given you to keep? Are you challenging others to live with 
with eternal values in view. And the Lord help us to do it that way. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your, for your word. And I pray that it won't return unto you void, that every ear that's heard these words today will let the truth sink into their hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to make the application to their individual life. I pray if there's one here who needs to make things right with you today, that they'll make things right. I pray that each one of us would would say we, are, we won't hold anything back. We want to guard the, the deposit that you've given us, both in protecting it and in obeying it. And so help us to be faithful to that charge, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.